Welcome to Canusa Street, a podcast at the intersection of the issues and policies between Canada and the United States. Here are your hosts, Beth Burke and Chris Sands. Well, hello, hello, and welcome back to Canusa Street. I'm Beth Burke with the Canadian American Business Council, joined today by my lovely co-host, Chris Sands of the Woodrow Wilson Center. Hello, how are you? I'm great, Beth. Nice to see you on Canusa Street. Absolutely great to be here, as always. And I am thrilled to um, invite, you know, welcome our guests today. And I will let uh, Chris do the introductions. Well, I'm excited too. Our guest is Nick Taylor Vasey, and he covers Canadian federal politics for Politico in Ottawa. You may know him. Many of our listeners probably do subscribe to the Ottawa Playbook, and he has the best collection. He and his colleagues, of course, because he has has a team, but uh, the best collection of news notes, insights, tidbits, movers, shakers, and usually a very good trivia question. Uh, and he is a master of trivia as well. Um, he's written... Breaking news, long features, morning newsletters, all in the pursuit of helping readers understand government policy and the politics that drives it behind the scenes. He comes to Politico from McLean's Magazine, where I used to read him there, and has bounced between Toronto and Ottawa for his entire adult life. But he is a friend of the United States and has so far managed to visit 44 of the 50 U.S. states. Not that he's counting, so uh, but he is counting because I got that number from him. So anyway, welcome. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Welcome. And I have to add, I am absolutely addicted. I first thing I open every morning is, you know, Politico, so I can't help myself. I'm going to clip that, save it, send it to my bosses. Thank you. Appreciate that. <laughs> no, it really is an invaluable resource. Sometimes I come in in the morning and I, I quiz Zavi and the team about things that I read that morning on the on the Metro and the way to the office. So uh, I keep everybody sharp by keeping them paying attention to you, Nick. Uh, Nick, when, how did you... How did you come to the idea of, you know, like the daily newsletter? How do you structure your coverage? Um, you know, it's a really interesting product. I don't think there's anything like it. And uh, and and you've been leading it now for a couple of years. So how did it come together for you? And, um, and you know, what's your vision for it? So we uh, more or less borrowed the idea uh, in some in some cases, just directly copied it from the other playbooks that exist in the political universe. So there's the the big one in D.C. Everybody in, in Washington reads that. I learned everybody in Brussels leads, reads that one. Everybody in London reads that one. Uh, we have state level playbooks. And so when I started in, in June 2021, I was encouraged to talk to basically everybody who does one of these things. Uh, learn what works. Uh, learn what their growing pains may have been. And then uh, worked with my boss and colleagues and some of our Washington uh, overlords on how best to serve the Ottawa audience. And so we decided in the end that the, the best thing we could do was give a, a daily newsletter to the insiders who really, 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 really need it and people who want to feel like insiders, um, but not just give them serious things and not just give them policy, but give them fun and make it seem like we're having fun and ultimately actually have fun doing it. And so that's kind of been the mission for two years. No, that's fantastic. I And I have to say, you know, one of your former McLean's colleagues first turned me on to this. Beth, you probably know her as well, Louisa Savage, because she was the Washington correspondent for McLean's for a while. And I know it is a big muckety-muck at Politico. And I think when I first heard that Politico was going to do something in, in Canada, I heard it from her. Um, she's, still, she's still a moral supporter. Uh, do you still get to chat with her? Oh, Louise's fingerprints are all over our our vision and our work, and she is our sort of fairy godmother, and is the reason we exist in this universe. And um, we just saw her this week, 
uh, when we were down for some kind of Politico team building and and networking. And uh, and we're I mean we're always happy to see her. We're just happy she's happy to see us. <laughs> <laughs> she's a force of nature, and and every, everybody who meets her and works with her says that. Well, and and a great Canadian from Alberta, I believe. Absolutely. Well, you know, it's been a really exciting year and I would love to hear from you maybe some of your highlights or favorite things that you've covered or written about for the year. Well, there's a, a lot of competition. I, when I was preparing for this, I started just writing in my notepad all of the things that happened this year, all the big things. So, uh, and, it, and it just, it's a lesson that kept going. So we had foreign interference stories in Canada first uh, dominated by China largely, but then of course, India took over that conversation for a period of time. There was wildfires and climate change, uh, of course, that dominated most of the late spring, summer and early fall in Canada. And when my team and I were down uh, in Washington for a similar uh, uh, period of time in June, everybody, like our colleagues included, were making fun of us and, and, and blaming us for bringing all the fires and smoke into Washington and New York. And, and we said, you know, um, please stop. That's not very nice. <laughs> and that, you know, of course, we had orange skies in, in a lot of major cities in North America, Ottawa included. Uh, then, of course, there's conflict, the war in Ukraine, uh, Israel and, and Hamas, and then anti-Semitism and Islamophobia that flowed from that. Uh, and then there was the Google and Meta fight with the federal government. The Leafs won a playoff series, if you remember that, which is a huge deal for us Maple Leafs fans. <laughs> and didn't really matter at all in the political world, but it really mattered in my own personal world. Uh, there were gender politics debates uh, that are ongoing. There was port strikes uh, in that were billions and billions of dollars worth of, of trade snarling labor disputes. Um, and then there was just for, for uh, you know, the cherry on top was that explosion at the Rainbow Bridge that for a brief period of time, nobody really understood at the border. But then it became clear it was a tragedy and and, and not a, a, a binational nightmare in the making. Um, but I'm rambling a bit because it was a busy year. Though I think my brief, and I'll keep it brief for now, we can get into it maybe, answer to the question definitively is that the most fun thing to cover and the most interesting thing to cover this year was what seemed to be a breaking of the deadlock for about four years, give or take, on the polling uh, at the federal level that had kept the liberals more or less tied with the conservatives, regardless of the conservative leader. They ebbed and flowed a bit, but mostly it was a statistical tie, according to most pollsters. And then this summer, something changed. And so trying to track and explain the divergence that saw the conservatives take a considerable lead and then maintain that at the expense of the liberals, folding in all of the stuff we haven't talked about, cost of living and affordability and and just how expensive things are and feel, um, getting into the dynamics there and how that basically defined the last four or five months of the of the calendar year was uh, was a, a real adventure because you talk to anybody in this town, liberals have an explanation, a point of view, conservatives do, new Democrats do, lobbyists do. There's not one kind of lobbyist, there's many kinds of lobbyists and uh, public servants. I mean, everybody has a different way into that conversation. So that's been uh, a bit of a wild ride and, uh, and one that is not over by any stretch. Nick, it's interesting because as much as you were talking about what happened in the last year, I couldn't help thinking, and it's probably because it is the end of the 
the year. Canusa Street has all the holiday decorations up on the street. Um, I couldn't help thinking that so many of those stories are going to cast a shadow into 2024 as well. Um, Sir, you talked about the conservative polling. Uh, There's the question of whether we'll see an election. Um, You talked about the wildfires. Will we see them come back? Um, In a lot of ways, do you find that these sort of annual wrap-ups are are really just a a way of gathering your thoughts for what's about to come next? Pretty much, yeah. As you say, (laughs) none of these these things are ending. The foreign interference is, is... probably not going to slow down, probably ramp up. Now there's a public inquiry that will examine in detail uh, uh, attempts at foreign interference in the previous two Canadian elections. Wildfires are, of course, not going anywhere. Uh, Meta is still not publishing Canadian news uh, on its platforms, and that'll come to a head this month, but it will not end this month. Um, The Leafs are probably going to make the playoffs again. You know, so we're going to have that to watch in 2024 <laughs> as well. And I think that that's where your forecasting may have sort of lost my confidence, but you know, still we can we can dream. Um, I, but let me ask you about a little bit about that because um, going into next year, the, you mentioned the foreign interference issue. We've obviously had those debates in the U.S. as well, and we definitely have an election coming up next year in 2024. Just from your perch, how is this issue playing on the two sides of the border? It is. It, do you think the Canadians are going to maybe do us both a service by taking a serious look at it? Or do you think they will be looking at what we're doing, asking questions about interference in our election and maybe picking up some tips? Yeah, I think it. it what the debate in Canada requires is a little bit of honing on and prioritizing what we're really talking about here. Uh, because I think some of the interference issues in the United States and the conversations south of the border are not quite the same as what's happening north of the border. Um, and, and, and so the, 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 the way and the progress uh, of the, the inquiry up here, uh, I think will come to define the, the debate here. I, you know, I, th- I think it'll be where everybody focuses their attention in, in the Ottawa bubble in the same way that when there was that public inquiry into the convoy on the streets of downtown Ottawa, that became the just the the like there was a the, the primary source of conversation about that convoy was funneled into that. And so for 2024, I, th- I think there may be a similar dynamic. I mean, there will still be there will. It's a much larger conversation than that inquiry. But but in Canada, you know, we we. I think we try to keep our conversations small <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and, and try to focus them a bit and that inquiry could serve that purpose. I, I think you're right. And I need to let Beth get in a question here too, but I, I was just going to say that I think that one of the things that, and maybe you agree that's made the Canadian debate differently is it's had a different face. You know, when we talk about election interference, People think about Donald Trump. Maybe they think about uh, Hillary Clinton. But in Canada, you've had Michael Chong. uh, You've had a couple of members resign. There's almost a a little bit less, you know, it's more human on the Canadian side. You know, there's there's a person and you can debate whether there's interference or not, but you can definitely see somebody and their family was affected, etc. In a way that maybe we don't think of with our celebrity politicians here on the U.S. side, Or, or maybe you think that's different. No, I think that's a good point. It's it's sort of jarring every time we learn that a new Canadian politician was definitely targeted. Aaron O'Toole, the former conservative leader, was another example. And you think, well, Aaron O'Toole is a, a, a politician. He's a public figure. He could have been prime minister had certain things gone a different way. He ended up not. Uh, but through it all, he's got a family. And I, I used to, I, I live not far from Stornoway, where the opposition leader lives. And during COVID, when all we ever did was walk around, you know, like zombies sometimes, I would 
cross paths with that family and they're just having a family walk like anyone else. And when you realize at, at that period of time, there was some kind of attempt, some kind of, you know, malevolent force. It's, it's, a, it, it, it is jarring. And I think we think of our politicians less as celebrities up here with the, uh, obvious exception of the, the guy in charge. Prime Minister is for sure a celebrity and by the Canadian standard. But but Michael Chong is another example you mentioned, a, a member of parliament, outspoken. Um, I don't think anybody really thinks of him as a celebrity. They think of him as a, a smart guy who's in politics and public life for the right reasons. And not the kind of guy who, well, not like anybody should, but not the kind of guy who should be worrying about his, his personal safety. Um, and uh, I think you kind of hit it on the head there. It's We're a little village up here. I mean, not to be too self-deprecating and minimizing. But we always talk about how Canada is six people. And and I think it's because we're, we feel closer to public figures who end up every weekend going, going back to their ridings, uh, unless, you know, unless they're the prime minister or cabinet ministers or other, other places to go. Most of them just go back and hang out at community events. So talking about 2024 and elections, I, I kind of want to go in a little bit of a different direction. What factors do you think are going to contribute to the landscape in Canada next year? Well, so that, I really like the way you frame that because my second page of notes is all about factors in 2024, because we talked so much about how a lot of the issues will just kind of, you know, they'll roll. Um, but we're looking at, I think, in our work and the way we're framing it, we're looking at interest rates, uh, obvious, you know, an obvious metric, uh, and then the impact of of inflation on even as it as it dips down and what that means for the people in charge and what that means for politicians, because ultimately the state of the Canadian economy is going to have uh, a big role in whether or not we have an election in 2024. I think the betting odds are still not on 2024. They're still on 2025. Most liberals who, you know, might end up getting uh, bullish at a certain point aren't bullish yet about being open about having a, an early election. The fixed date is still what they're talking about. But if the economy improves, if if people are less worried about their mortgages, if gas prices stay as low as they've kind of gotten, even though it's still kind of high, <laughs> it's still a, a new normal low. Absolutely. And and it's not like the price of a grocery bill is going to go down, but if it stops going up and that has enough of an impact on people, like regular people, um, I, I, I don't think Pierre Polyev is going to lose a lot of ground, uh, but I think maybe the liberals hope, some liberals now quietly are hoping that it can bolster their case to go to the polls, which brings me to my final factor, which is Donald Trump. And if not Donald Trump, just the mega influence. You you hear the liberals now in Ottawa. Uh, today they're doing it, but it's been a couple of weeks of this where they're no longer just saying that conservatives up here are sort of Republican light and and they're borrowing tactics from, you know, the nefarious conservatives of some era uh, of bygone era. Now they're saying these are mega conservatives and they're they're obstructing government because that's what mega Republicans do uh, south of the border. And they're laying it on thick. And you, 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 you know, you can see a future in which uh, Donald Trump or whether he wins or loses the Republican influence and Republican noise south of the border starts to fuel liberal aspirations. So if you have the, the twin forces of an improving economy and uh, a, 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 an evil sort of force to campaign against, well, maybe you have a fall 2024 election, you know, so maybe not, but maybe. And I think six months ago, we weren't mostly in Ottawa saying that we were mostly saying, yeah, no one's really talking about it. 
the NDP has no reason to go to the polls. Liberals have no reason to go to the polls and uh, and they just want to govern. And I think that's still largely true. They do like to govern, but they they also like to win and they want to secure another mandate. And this prime minister wants to win four in a row. And, you know, if they can find the time, if they can find the way and the reason, they might go for it. So one of the things that you sort of hit on is the the MAGA Republican piece. And I think from, from a U.S. perspective, a lot of that is cultural and social issues that are really pushed on. And so I'm curious if you've noticed any shifts in the stories you cover sort of on that front and if it like moves the political discussion at all in a way that is new or different than you've seen previously. It's a really... Interesting question. I think the answer was probably different a year ago. Um, there, there are culture wars fought in Ottawa, but they are, I think, much more strategic. Uh, I think a good example is the the gender politics debate and the move in some provinces here in Canada to force parental consent for pronouns used by their kids in schools. Very sensitive issue, the kind of thing that people I know are talking about. Normal people who don't follow politics every day are talking about this. The federal level has not directly, on a regular basis, engaged with that debate. I think Pierre Polyev is aware of the potential attacks uh, that would come his way immediately if he stridently took the side of the premiers uh, and pledged to bring some sort of action to the federal level where he prime minister, a prime minister on the pronoun stuff. Uh, he has voiced support for those premiers and for parents in in broader terms, but he has not gone all in. And Polyev is a guy who goes all in when he decides to. And the liberals, for that reason, I think, have been a little hamstrung. They can't really hold that issue against Pierre Polyev, even though they probably desperately want to, uh, if you know, were they to get the chance. So it's it's uh, it, there's that's a nuanced answer to your question, but I, I think it's it's a strategic approach versus the shotgun approach of just all out debate stage brawls between Republicans and between Republicans and Democrats and and spilling out onto TV and onto the floor of the House of Representatives and kind of basically anywhere you can have that fight. It's I mean, people are, you know, fighting those fights here, but it's it's less uh, bombastic, which is saying something because Pierre Polyev is a pretty bombastic guy uh, on a lot of other issues and other 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 sort of culture war adjacent issues. But but he he really the denominator for him on most of those is is economy, affordability, people struggling to put food on the table and raise their kids in a way that gives their kids a better chance at a brighter future, all that stuff. Um, he, he doesn't dwell in the the more overt culture wars as openly. And Nick, Nick, you talk about culture wars, and one of the ones that is very distinctively Canadian is the, the cultural um, conversations that come from Quebec. And whether it was Bill 96, um, a year ago, we might have talked about Francois Legault as one of the more important and I think dominant prime ministers or premiers uh, at, at the provincial level. But he's very quickly lost support. And I, I, it seems now that he's the least popular uh, of the premiers. So, so I guess I wonder if you could talk a little bit about Quebec and how Quebec impinges both on the election and on some of these cultural issues. It's amazing how quickly things change in Quebec. Usually during a, a campaign, but in this case, between the camp, the two campaigns and a long way from the next one as well. I mean, we remember 2011, that election, the NDP came out of what appeared to be nowhere to dominate in that province at the federal level, provincial level. It had these wild swings between liberals and the, the separatist parties in now Legault's 
sort of uh, uh, proudly nationalist but not separatist party. And the star there seems to be falling as the PQ rises. And now I, I saw a poll recently saying that support for, for separatism among uh, among Quebecers is ticking up ever so gently. Not spiking, but ticking up in a way that you think, man, get that damn burst. <laughs> Just because Quebecers really do shift in in big, big, big shifts. Um, at the federal level, it's I think it's a really... Uh, it's a really interesting time because the the Conservative Party is really moderating uh, its ambition for the province in the next election. I think they realistically want to pick up a few seats, um, maybe get to 15 out of the what will be 78. Um, but I also think they're looking at the current polling and seeing that maybe there's a chance for more. So they're starting to attack and for a few months have been attacking the Bloc Québécois pretty openly because they are competing with the Bloc in a lot of seats uh, for for those 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 pickups that could make the difference in a tight election between a loss and a win or a minority and a majority. On the island of Montreal, they're not really fighting very hard at all because that's liberal land and the liberals desperately need to hold on to that turf. And so it creates this this sort of asymmetric warfare between these parties. Uh, there are there are a few three way races, but there are a lot of two way races, uh, and they will pot potentially sharpen even even more as we get closer to that election, whenever it happens. Uh, but for the block, it's uh, every election is existential. I mean, after twenty eleven, when they were wiped out by the the NDP, they did end up winning those seats back eventually. It took them a couple of electoral cycles, but if they're not in the House of Commons, they're nowhere, and and so. They see the conservatives coming at them. They're not going to go down easy and they're going to fight tooth and nail uh, against liberals as well. I mean, they're going to fight on a couple of fronts. Well, and you, you mentioned Quebec in this regard, but I, I remember back to the 92, uh, 93 election where the conservatives were largely wiped out. Um, quite a surprise. And and even the last Harper-Trudeau election, the 2015 one that sort of surprised us all because Trudeau had been in the third place and moved very quickly up to first place. I think Canadians overall are much more willing to sort of change their mind, may, maybe join a wave. It's it, it's something where you see so much so like Trump supporters who are deep Trump supporters and you know Democrats who are dyed in the wool. It just seems like Canadians keep an open mind, or maybe they're just not very loyal to their parties or politicians that much. They are capable of turning quite quickly. Yeah, I was having a conversation actually on the plane ride on the way home from Washington about how Canadians are, are by and large not an ideological people. And we always talk about the 905, right? The suburbs around Toronto, not the only suburbs that are important, but um, but there are a lot of seats there. And those are the folks that voted for Stephen Harper in 2011 when he won his majority government. Um, when Brian Mulroney won in 1984, that required winning a ton of seats in places that the Conservatives never won, including in Quebec. Um, I think you're right that when there's the right leader with the right uh, message, a, a huge swing can happen. There's a there. It isn't it isn't 40 percent are voting this way, 40 percent are voting this way. And, you know, you've got 20 percent in the middle. It's more like 20 and 20 and the rest in the middle of decided voters with the NDP added in for good measure, because, of course, they do have a base of support. Uh, but it's. It's, I think, helping to explain why Pierre Polyev was able to somehow in the summertime, when most people aren't thinking about politics, swing those polls in a way that has actually sustained. Because people are, regardless of the facts of what he's saying, people take issue with the way he frames arguments, the way he assembles facts, and whether or not what he comes up with is inarguably true. <laughs> so maybe a polite way to say it. A lot of people just say he gets up and spats lies. 
um, people are hurting and they see in him somebody who is delivering the message they want to hear. I mean, people are really struggling to pay for almost anything in a lot of cases. And when you have a government saying we we have your back, but it's like quarterly payments of a, of a GST rebate that does, I don't think people are ever really going to use that as a, the reason that they should vote for this government again, right? Where Pierre Polyev is, he has a much simpler message and people really want to hear it. And you talked about people questioning his framing, but I have to say that one of the big things that happened this year was that he got rid of his glasses and I'm a glasses wearer and, and I'll reveal to those people who are listening to this as a podcast, Nick is also a glasses wearer. So like, did, did getting rid of the glasses, was that the shift? I, Do I need laser eye surgery to become popular? <laughs> the, we all joked about it, right? We all said, oh my God, he took off the glasses. Let's see how it goes. But he took off the glasses and he paired that with um, what in the United States sounds like a paltry ad campaign, but it was like a multi-million dollar TV ad campaign. So if you're watching the Jays on TV, you see the Polyev ad and it was a softer um, you know, definition of his character, a guy who's known for being brash and for kind of leading with his chin. I think it it's hard to say it didn't have an impact, right? And I don't know about the glasses, but they were part of the package. They were part of the package. I mean, he, he, I, when I look at the glasses Polyev and the, and the, and the glasses free Polyev, do I feel differently about him? No, but it, it's, it was part of a, part of a package. And he spent a ton of the summer on the road. He did see a lot of people. I mean, I don't, I don't know what the grand total of all those rallies was, but he, he, he is, he meets an impressive number of folks when he goes out there. And he, when he, when he leaves Ottawa, I think his problem sometimes is when he stays in Ottawa too long, because then he's not seeing people. Well, I want to ask you a follow-up question, but I think we need to take a moment to break. Right. We, we usually do. That's a very good, you're always thinking, Beth. I, I, I need to listen to you more. Oh, no, no. Just a quick break and then we'll be right back. What did Prime Minister William Lyon Mackenzie King and President Woodrow Wilson have in common? Yes, they both led their countries during wartime, but they were also the only leaders of their countries to hold a PhD. At the Wilson Center's Canada Institute, we follow these academic civil servants to bring the public the best nonpartisan research and analysis. We're the only think tank in DC focused on this vital relationship. So in addition to the great repartee you get to hear on Canusa Street, head over to wilsoncenter.org to check out the Canada Institute's work and events. Welcome back to Canusa Street, everyone. Um, I'm Chris Sands. I'm here with Beth Burke, my uh, fabulous co-host. And we're talking today to Nick taylor Vasey, who is the uh, with Politico in Ottawa. Many people read his newsletter every day, and he does deeper and deeper coverage. And we've been having a great conversation about Canadian politics. And when we broke, uh, it was clearly time for, I had gone into talking about glasses. So, so Beth, we need to, you need to rescue us with a bit more substance, please. Well, I actually, I mean, thank you. I was actually going to ask a little bit of a question more about you and your role, Nick. So, you know, as someone who plays a hand in shaping, you know, sharing the narratives, like, what do you think opportunities and challenges exist from the media's perspective, shaping and sharing political narratives in a soon-to-be or election year? It's shifting. Um, I think one thing that we probably as journalists have always known uh, is important but is now, I mean, at least fe feels like it's more important than ever, is trust with our audience. Trust with anybody who might come across our work 
and the fragility of that trust. I think every single day about every word I write and whether or not that is going to have a negative impact, uh, not on maybe somebody's perception of of the the facts or their you know whether or not they're happy or sad to read it, but but will it will it have an impact on the trust they have in the people who are telling that story? Um, so in that case, my colleagues and I. Although I don't worry about them, I just worry about my my inability to write effectively. My colleagues don't have a problem with that; they're very smart. Um, so that's the first thing. That's like the first layer, uh, because if we start to lose trust, which which I think most polls have said we we kind of have as an industry um, over some some period of time, um, then our influence is diminished. And then what are we doing? You know, if we, if we don't have trust with our audience, we don't have anything because they're not going to read or watch or listen to us. Uh, and at important times like elections, when information and accuracy and uh, and reliable information is is the most important it can be in a democratic sense if the people like us who feel it's our job to deliver that stuff can't do it effectively we're i think that leads to a worse democracy and so it's on us i think um it's on everybody but i think it's on us to to make sure that everything we write is framed responsibly um not not just about getting both sides of a story to um to comment but Think about the stories we're writing. Think about the stories we're not writing. Think about the the places in, in the parliamentary precinct we're not spending a lot of time watching, kinds of issues we're not watching. Um, are we just writing about a bunch of things that are interesting to the bubble here in Ottawa and not to regular people? Uh, how are we writing about those issues in the bubble? Are we really just focusing on personalities and not not the, the policy? I mean, I'm definitely guilty of that because my job is to a lot of the times write about the personalities and the politics and less the policy. Again, I defer to my smart colleagues for policy things. Um, but it's it's the that's like the driving force of the day is, is don't break trust. And if you do, if you get a, a nasty email or you have a conversation with somebody where they say, man, you were off base and, and in a way that like that was quite serious, then it's I think talk about it rationally, but also kind of level with that person and don't just deny or deflect, you know, maybe self-critically analyze what we're doing and make sure that the questions we're asking are properly framed and aren't, uh, aren't filled with, with charged language just for the sake of it. Uh, not that, you know, I don't think that's an epidemic here in Ottawa, but I just, it's, it's something I think about every day. You mentioned a little bit the the village aspect. Do you think that that's part of it? That um, that that in Ottawa people do have a lot of direct contact. It's hard to other the other person because you're gonna, probably going to run into them at uh, on Spark Street or or uh, you know just walking around. Is is there a, is there a kind of a different flavor of the coverage just because you're likely to bump into the people you're writing about quite frequently? And I know because of the movers and shakers and the birthdays that you announce, I know a lot of your readers are quite engaged and feel like a personal connection to the to the playbook. Yeah, I think people feel um, quite a personal connection because often we're describing their workday the next day or we're describing what their workday might be uh, the following day. So uh, if, if there's an error, like we hear about it, um, I made a, an error this week, a small one, but a substantive one. I, I mentioned I, there was a, a marathon uh, committee meeting uh, on a piece of legislation that the conservatives want to block. And I had said that the meeting ended at 11.45 p.m. Uh, but the meeting actually ended at 2.36 a.m., which was a few hours later. And it was just a silly early morning bleary-eyed mistake that I made reading a timestamp wrong. It was the stupidest thing I could have done. But I heard from people because they said, 
no, we were there later. And that was like, that is meaningful to us. And they were right, you know? And so, uh, in that case, the, I think the best thing to do is just be transparent and, and, and cop to it and say, um, I'll do better, yeah. <laughs> but cop to it. The important thing is not to make excuses. It's, it's to, because people in this city do, yeah, they, they take it. I don't mean personally in the sense that they feel like they've been wronged, but, but it is personal to them because it is their life that you're describing. And now I'm going to correct myself because I, I made it sound like you're doing almost personal, like celebrity journalism. I mean, you're not because one of the, but sometimes we well, are sometimes... Is the thing, like sometimes really, you know, like in our, in our little bubble of what we, what we define in these corners as, as celebrity. I mean, it is kind of the thing we Well, do. I was going to compliment you and I don't think this is inconsistent with what you're saying, but you, you have like this gift for say, going through parliamentary accounts and finding out who spent how much on cell phones and, you know, roaming charges and things, you really do get into the weeds. I know people will object if you get, you know, how much they spent wrong, but but you really are willing to go in and dig and to try to uh, try to tell a different story. So it's not just personalities. Yeah, that's, that's right. Um, there are a lot of nooks and crannies to write about. There are a lot of documents that a lot of our, our gallery colleagues, press gallery colleagues, just don't have the time to write a big, uh, about because they're writing about other things. And so we have a fun time, uh, us in the little Politico universe, our little branch plant in Ottawa, uh, digging in through, through those corners. And, uh, and it's like you said, off the top tidbits, people love tidbits because we're trying to feed conversations. And so if, if we can, if we can find a little tidbit that we know is going to feed someone's coffee, you know, conversation at little victories on Elgin street, then yeah, we go for it. Like we, we packed that thing with, with those little tidbits. Excellent. Well, this has been so much fun. I really enjoy it. And it is entertainment and full of knowledge every day. So thank you so much for sharing your time, your thoughts, your perspective. I really, it's been so great chatting. Thanks. For yeah, and you start a lot of conversations on Canusa Street. People walk over to the post office. They're stopping into the shops. And what are they talking about? They're talking about what Nick's put in Politico uh, on the playbook. So read on both sides of the street. Uh, much appreciated. Thanks for being with us, Nick. Thank you. Wow, Beth, that was a great conversation. Nick Taylor Vesey is an amazing journalist, but also just so conversant on the issues that we that we're thinking about all the time. Absolutely. He knows the nooks and crannies and details of just about everything and where everyone's coming from. It's wonderful to hear his perspective. It is. And and he started this uh, tradition of doing once or twice a year a a trivia night in Washington. He does them regularly in Ottawa, but he's done two now. And I, we over on the Wilson Center, we we participated in one. And I think next next time he's down, uh, we're going to have to have a Battle of Canusa Street with a CABC team and a Wilson team and see how they both come out. Oh, I would love that. But I'm not surprised that you won. I feel like all the fun <laughs> facts and knowledge that is lives in the mind of Chris Sands should carry you in every trivia competition. You would you would think so. But the thing about trivia is it's not about how much you know. It's about whether you know the right obscure things. And I have to say, we didn't win. We did well. We participated. We did well. But so far as I know, it's always been a Canadian embassy team that snuck ahead. Oh, those scoundrels. Uh, well, I partner with them a lot. Maybe I'll grab them and put them on the CABC team. <laughs> yeah, maybe we can get Nick to give us some trivia questions. We can add that to the Canusa Street uh, you know, mix. I love that idea. 
<laughs> well, it's great seeing you here on Caduceus Street. Look forward to doing this again with you regularly. Always a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by the Canadian American Business Council and the Wilson Center. If you like this episode, help others find our show and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. 